0: Mordechai was the initiator, the teacher, the first messenger. He awakened her, he fired her imagination, and sensitized her heart. Through him came the inspired word to her. Yet the strategy was hers. The critical decisions how and when to do it were hers. She could not consult Mordechai, and even if she could, she would not have accepted advice from him. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 267, Queen Esther's superb statecraft. I'm Mayor Salavacek. What is statecraft? What is the essence of political excellence? The question is so important, and the answer is so often incorrectly given. We tend to speak of political science as if politics has immutable rules. But Isaiah Berlin cogently argued in his essay on political judgment that, in fact, the opposite is true. Great leaders often practice affairs of state not as a science but as an art. Facing a crisis, they, quote, grasp the unique combination of characteristics that constitute this particular situation this and no other, end quote. Leadership, in other words, is often instinct, instinct in the absence of general rules. And that, I believe, is why one of the most sublime instances of Jewish statecraft can be found in Queen Esther and in the story of the book that is named after her. Following the discovery of Haman's decree, Mordechai the courtier becomes Mordechai the Jewish activist, donning sackcloth and screaming in the streets. He asks Esther to follow his example storm into the throne room, crying and beseeching on behalf of her people. Esther faces a choice to save herself or risk her life for her people. She hesitantly tells her cousin that she hasn't seen the king for a month and that she is not able to enter his chamber without permission. Mordecai, as we have seen, informs Esther in turn of the eternity of the Jews. The question, he essentially says, is not whether the Jews will survive, but whether Esther will survive as a Jew. Esther internalizes Mordecai's message, but what follows is often misinterpreted. Mordechai galvanized Esther to act, but Esther did not follow Mordechai's plan, which was to storm immediately into the king's throne room and plead for the Jews to be speared. That would have ended with Esther's death. Imagine barging into a throne room where no one is allowed to enter and announcing to her husband, a man known for fits of rage, that she had kept him in the dark about her origins the entire time. Imagine how embarrassed he would have been to discover that he had consigned his wife's people to death without any knowledge of who his wife actually was. And having been made a fool, would not his own anger turn on Esther and her people? Esther, therefore, rejects Mordechai's plan and asks Mordechai to assemble the Jews of Shushan to fast and pray on her behalf. She then devises a course of action of her own making. The striking fact is that even as Mordechai is the original instigator of Jewish salvation, it is this young queen who shows the truest political cunning, statecraft, political wisdom. As Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik wrote, quote, Esther, with her incisive intelligence, understood that no plea addressed to the king would produce any results. Hysterical crying, supplication, begging would at best be ineffectual. At worst, they may cause the infliction of more harm. Since Haman had succeeded in brainwashing Akashverosh and in arousing in him paranoid, mortal fear of assassins and rebels, there was no power in the world that would be capable of dissuading Akashverosh from destroying all his imaginary enemies. Could anyone sway Stalin from his mad designs? Esther, Rabbi Soloveitch continues could avail herself of one method only, namely, to turn the tables on Haman, end quote. And he further adds that her goal, therefore, was, quote, to arouse doubts in the sick king's mind concerning Haman's loyalty and devotion, end quote. Esther, therefore, proceeds with her elaborate plan, playing on the insecurities of a paranoid king, inviting her husband to a drinking party, along with Haman, chapter 5. Now came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house over against the king's house. And the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house over against the gate of the house. And it was so when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court that she obtained favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. Then said the king unto her, What wilt thou, Queen Esther, and what is thy request? It shall be even given thee to the half of the kingdom. And Esther answered, If it seem good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared for him. The king and Haman come, and Esther then invites both of them to another drinking party the next day. This, ladies and gentlemen, is essentially akin to inviting your husband to a romantic anniversary dinner, and then also inviting his best friend. And the goal, of course, is to ignite Ahasuerus' jealousy, as well as his capacity for fearing conspiracy and attempts on his life. Finally, when the king's jealousy is built up precisely when he is drunk, Esther seizes the opportunity, reveals her Jewishness, and then his jealousy of Haman is made manifest. And the king, arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath, went into the palace garden, and Haman stood up to make request for his life to Esther the queen, for he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. Then the king returned out of the palace garden into the place of the banquet of wine, and Haman was fallen upon the bed where An Esther was, Then said the king, Will he take the queen also before me in the house? Haman is hung. Esther pleads with the king to lift the decree against the Jews, and when the king instead declares that he will throw his support behind the Jews who wish to battle and defeat those that hate them, it is Esther, who, after the Jews emerge militarily victorious, asks her husband for another day for waging war against anti-Semites, thereby securing the well-being of her people for some time to come. Haman had taken advantage of the king's propensity for rash rage over drink. And now Esther achieves his undoing in the same manner. In the end of the book, it is Esther, not Mordechai, who is the true political actor, the true political giant, the true statesman. Rabbi Soloveitchik further wrote, quote, Mordechai was the initiator, the teacher, the first messenger. He awakened her, he fired her imagination and sensitized her heart. Through him came the inspired word to her. Yet the strategy was hers. The critical decisions how and when to do it were hers. She could not consult Mordechai, and even if she could, she would not have accepted advice from him. End quote. We are therefore left with gratitude that Mordechai ignited Esther's activism. But we are also grateful that Esther understood that Mordechai's plan would not work and that another plan was needed. But why did Mordechai not understand this? How could he ask Esther to barge into the throne room before the royal presence? Here, I think, we can discover an insight that is essential to fully understanding the story. Rabbi Soloveitchik stressed an aspect of the book of Esther that sets it apart from many biblical books. Quote, At that time, the covenantal community was losing, slowly but surely, the most precious of all gifts, prophecy. The great covenantal dialogue between man and God that had commenced with Abraham was about to be terminated, and the prophetic community faced a stark, ruthless reality, a non-prophetic existence. End quote. What this means, I think, is not only that Revelation is coming to a close, but also that the entire method of political engagement is about to evolve. In earlier books of the Tanakh, aside from the kings themselves, the central actors on the political stage are prophets. From a political and philosophical perspective, what is the job of the prophet? Often it is to fearlessly proclaim God's message to the king. For example, if Ahab the wicked murders an Israelite and steals his land, it may not be politically prudent for Elijah to storm into the throne room and tell him that what he did was wrong, but that is exactly what Elijah does. With the exclamation, shall you murder and also inherit? This is the approach that, in a somewhat similar sense, Mordechai seeks to adopt. He asks Esther to storm into the throne room. And when we ponder the text, we are able perhaps to understand why. The only moment that the land of Israel is mentioned in the book of Esther is in his description of Mordecai's biography. We are told that Mordecai is the son of Yair, that Mordechai's father experienced the end of the kingdom of Judea, of the first temple, of the age of Jeremiah and Huldah and other prophets. Prophecy, in other words, was the model of political action that Mordechai's father experienced. This was the model that Mordechai had imbibed from birth. This was the model of leadership that was part of his patrimony. Mordechai's father was almost certainly an intimate of the prophets. But Esther, we are told, lost her parents as a child. Unlike Mordechai, Esther knew no one of the generation of Judea, of the age when prophets stormed royal courts with the words, Ko Hashem, thus saith the Lord, as Jeremiah did in Zedekiah's court at the end of the first temple period. Perhaps the respective biographies of Mordechai and Esther lend a deeper dimension to their perspectives. Different moments present us with different challenges. How Elijah acted before a king is not necessarily how we should act before a king. Israel is not Persia, and Israel's age of prophecy is not the age of Ahasuerus. Mordechai is linked through his parents to a vision of the Jewish past. Jeremiah, Nathan, Elijah live in his soul. For this reason, perhaps, he seeks for Jewish leaders to act as prophetic figures. But Esther whose parents had died when she was young, Esther, who grew up within Persian culture, who so seamlessly adapts to the palace of the king, Esther understands that now a new method, not prophecy but political cunning, is required. The irony, then, is that Esther, perhaps precisely because she is less connected to the legends of the past, is best able to help ensure the Jewish future. Here, perhaps, a comparison can be made to two visionary modern Jewish political leaders, Herzl and Jabotinsky. Both of them came from outside the traditional Jewish society to whom they spoke. But that was precisely the reason that they were also politically able to think outside the box, so that when they chose to throw their lot in with their people, they were at times able to see what others did not. A Zionist movement already existed before Herzl, but it was he who came from outside the organized Jewish world and was able to see that what was necessary was the creation of political institutions, the engagement of political figures as statesmen, an insight that led to the Zionist Congress and ultimately to the Balfour Declaration. Jabotinsky grew up in an Odessa not unlike Shushan, a city of a multitude of peoples, languages, and identities, very different from the shtetl or of the Jewish communities of Vilna or Frankfurt. But it was Jabotinsky who understood that Jews needed to learn to fight to create an army and that only then could Jewish safety in the Holy Land be ensured. Both Herzl and Jabotinsky were dismissed by many of their contemporaries, but both saw what many others did not see, Now Esther, of course, unlike Jabotinsky and Herzl, has profound religious roots. She is a devout Jew. She asked all Israel to fast for her. But Esther also grew up in Persia without parents and was so much a part of the larger culture that she was able to disguise her identity. And perhaps because of this unusual origin, she was also prescient in her understanding of how a new politics was required for the post-prophetic age. Rabbi Soloveitchuk put it this way, The Torah tells us the story of the prophetic community at the hour of triumph, at the hour of revelation and direct contact with God. But Esther faced a new question. How can the Jew triumph over his adversaries and enemies if God has stopped speaking to him, if the cryptic messages he receives remain unintelligible and incomprehensible? End quote. Esther thus emerges as the originator, the inventor, of Jewish politics post-prophecy. Esther understood that a new approach to safeguarding the Jewish people in a hostile environment needed to be adopted and she did so while retaining the faith and loyalty of the past. Esther still asked the Jews to gather in fasting and prayer for her. Esther knew that while one must see oneself as an agent of providence, nevertheless, when no clear revelation has been given, one must also utilize instinct, reflecting a mastery of realpolitik, embodying the very political judgment of which Isaiah Berlin wrote. This is why Esther is a hero celebrated year after year. If, for the Bible, Esther embodies the beginning of diaspora politics, it is because her tale teaches the eternal vulnerability of the Jews and the eternal necessity, therefore, not only of vigilance but also of political judgment. And that is why, for us, Esther is one of the greatest leaders in Jewish history. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.